Well, good morning. It's good to be back in the pulpit. And we are continuing our theme this month in our messages that kind of revolve around the sharing of the gospel. This is our gospel month, our evangelistic month, I should say. It's always gospel month. (laughs) But this is our, our time to sharpen our understanding of the gospel and our ability to share it. And so we are trying to emphasize that this month, to emphasize what a privilege it is to be a minister of the gospel. So we're going to be um, surveying scripture this morning, well, I'll be surveying uh, from here, uh, looking at God's sovereignty in salvation. I think it's a crucial aspect of our um, endeavors as evangelists to understand that aspect clearly. Otherwise, we are prone to error, we are prone to uh, think in pragmatic terms when it comes to the gospel. I don't think I'm on. Uh, is it this one? Well, uh, Robert, turn me down. Okay. Tell me when you're ready. And yeah, I'll carry on. So one of the temptations believers need to overcome when evangelizing is to get a response. You come across as a debater, you're going to come across people who are very antagonistic toward this saving message because you're declaring to them that they are sinners. They are not right with God and they are condemned already. And so it's very confrontational and you take a debating position and you want them to acknowledge you are correct and you win and off you go. We have to avoid that temptation to get a response and to get a commitment from people. We sometimes feel we need them to, quote-unquote, make a decision, right? You've heard that term before. In fact, sometimes people declare that they've made a decision, which is a dangerous understanding of the believer's role, the believer's role in gospel proclamation. Because if we focus on the hearer making a commitment, that person that you're sharing with, or praying a prayer, or agreeing with our arguments, or logical propositions, or even our reasoning as apologists, uh, we will eventually be tempted to shape that message to get that response, to make it more palpable even, so that we get more responses, because it's a softer message. And do you know what kind of profession does that very thing? Salesmen. The sales profession. And I have a confession to make. I was in that role in my younger years. Started out with cameras and moved to cars. And uh, that is a confession. And when it came to cars, I tell you, the pressure is on to get a response. And if you didn't get a response, it showed up in your bottom line, and you often sat in the manager's office too often. If I didn't get a commitment or a response to buy in, I failed, and that showed. Um, And I could see early on that my fellow salesmen were able to make a sale where I couldn't. They would sort of step in. I was very uh, young and, and inexperienced, so I'd watch and I'd learn. And my manager also gave me tips. And one of them that he gave me was never give the customer an opportunity to say no. You're always leading to the, to the yes. You've got to get a yes response, a positive response. You've got to frame your questions in a positive way so they agree. Yes, I'd like a car that doesn't burst into flames very much. Thank you. I would really, and yes, I'd like a safe car and a reliable car. Yes, yes, yes. You're, you're leading them to that ultimate commitment. And pretty soon they're saying yes to buy a car that they didn't need or even maybe want. And I saw that happen many times. Not from me, thankfully. Let me say on record, I didn't last very long in that profession. I think it was five or six months. I always ended up empathizing with the person that couldn't afford that new car or didn't need, the granny didn't need the 500 horsepower 4x4. And though I would lead them to something that I would want. Used car, I've never bought a new car, I've always bought used, and I would lead them in that direction. 
And I'd often lead them to a different dealership, said, this is the car you want, but we don't sell them. And I wasn't very popular because of that. I just loved cars, not where I worked. <laughs> and so, yeah, I got more satisfaction with them getting what they wanted and needed rather than getting commitment from them. So, yeah, needless to say, I wasn't very popular. And so, what's the application here? When we think about the gospel, we need to remember that the gospel is not a product that you are selling. It is not a commodity that you need to flog off to other people and distribute as a commodity or a resource. You're not looking for the lowest or highest bidder or even the lowest common denominator so that more people will take it. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Remember that. Which means we don't need to be ashamed. Which means we don't need to dress it up. We don't need to uh, sell it like a thing that, need to, that needs an acquired taste. We don't need to reframe it. And because we are simply messengers of that gospel that saves, we simply follow the word of God. We need not cut corners or soften the edges or soften the blow or apologize for the truth that we are saying. That's not what it means to be an apologist. <laughs> Sorry, I'm telling you the truth. No, it means to be able to defend and understand what you're saying. You know, our culture, as our culture becomes increasingly, at a very rapid rate, post-Christian, we find a whole new generation that are echoing this refrain. I once was lost, but now I found myself. I found myself. I would even say the majority of my peers outside of my Christian circles that I rub shoulders with have all heard the gospel and all of those who have made a profession in Christ have eventually turned from it. The question is though, what were they professing in? Were they able, were they actually able to reject what God has bought? We're going to look at that this morning. There are two terms that we most commonly hear about a believer that has seemingly slipped out of the clutches of salvation, if I can put it in that term. Uh, we hear the term backsliding sometimes, right? and we hear falling away. Um, and I don't think those are equally, equal terms, even though they are used interchangeably sometimes. Uh, one, I think, describes better a temporary situation of sin that a believer can find themselves in or stumbling. The other is a permanent departure, an apostate. And although the term backsliding is not used in the New Testament, it is often used to describe a professing believer that has got this temporary sin issue, uh, which is possible for believers. In 1 John 1.8, we know that we are sinners, right? And he says this, If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So sin, we know, is a, a state that even a believer is in. But as we looked at this morning, we are not captivated by it. We are freed from the power of it, but we are prone to it. We know from the word that we are clothed by Christ, Christ's righteousness, but we still remain in that tainted and fallen nature that affects all mankind. So we may sin, but if we are truly saved, we know when we sin. We are aware of our sin, increasingly so. We recognize it. We can address it. We should be grieved by it. And we repent of it and turn from it. So there's a constant awareness of our fallen nature. And as God works in our hearts through His Word and by His Spirit, we become more sensitive to our sin and, uh, and not less so, as we also looked at this morning. And even though we are going to be imperfect this side of eternity, and we are going to be prone to sin, we make war with it. To sin less. And in doing so, we become more Christ-like. And this is done by and through His grace in our lives. So temporary but repented sin is very different from falling away or a wholesale rejection of the gospel. I've heard many Christian parents speak about even their grown children with this kind of refrain. My son's a good man. He's a Christian. But he's... Uh, he's backslidden at the moment, uh, but they pray that he'll come back. Just think of the terminology they're using, which is very common, uh, at least with some people I've spoken to. 
They apologize about his lack of love for the Lord. Think about a mark of a believer. But they really don't look at the connection between salvation and sanctification. They're able somehow to disconnect the two. And even if the son is living a life of gratuitous sin, uh, he's rejected all hope of the gospel, and he's living entirely for himself and the pleasures of the world, they say he's backslidden. And that's the wrong term. Falling away is a biblical phrase that I would use. It means for a professing believer, professing believer who has been living as a believer no longer lives as one. His belief in that regard was simply a mental or even a religious acknowledgement of the gospel rather than a renewing of his heart by the means of the gospel. He's an apostate and a false believer who has just simply revealed who he always was. Even living alive for years, he finally rejects the faith he once professed, turned from the church and turns himself over to a life filled with the temporary pleasures of the world. So my question is this, can a genuine believer become an apostate? Can a genuine believer ever reject the truth of the gospel? And so here we're going to be looking at the security of the believer and as we proclaim it, the security of salvation found in the gospel. As I hope we'll see this morning, the problem with this kind of thinking of salvation, it's, it's temporary nature or insufficient nature, is that it puts salvation at the hands and the control of the believer. The thinking goes like this. A saint that is saved by faith alone through Christ alone can undo the work of Christ alone. That's wrong thinking. There is a claim here that a believer who is indelibly covered by the blood of Christ can now remove that saving blood of salvation from himself. In this process, he seems to foil God's electing sovereignty, foiling the the sovereignty of God, because now God can no longer see the perfection of Christ. He's no longer clothed in Christ. He's somehow been able to undo this covering and now sees once again the sin-stained life of that person. It suggests that a slave of righteousness can simply switch his allegiance to sin and purchase himself and become his own master. These are all works, sovereign works of God that man is now saying he has control over. Doesn't it make a mockery of the gospel? Since it declares that the effectual calling of the saving gospel of Christ to the elect chosen by God can in fact be made ineffectual by the will of man. Can man make God's decree ineffectual? This morning we're going to turn to Scripture and understand God's electing His eternal, His final, and His complete saving grace. Turn with me to Romans 8, 26, a very familiar passage, and one where we will spend um, the majority of our time, although we are surveying other Scriptures to get a, a better picture of what God's electing grace looks like. Romans 8, I'll start at verse 26, but we will be focusing on 28 29. Uh, um, sorry, 29.30. Let me start from 26 to give you the picture here, the bigger context. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches hearts knows that this knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was also raised, who is at the right hand of God, 
who intercede, who indeed is interceding for us. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, what a profound section of Scripture as it describes and lays out your complete sovereign hand in electing work in our lives. That we are your people, not because we have sought you out, not that we have done works, not that you have noticed us, but Lord, that you have chosen us from eternity past. And Lord, our salvation is secure because of your uh, mighty salvation in our lives. Lord, we, as we go through these passages this morning and as we uh, try to understand in a more profound and, and a deeper way the beauty and the uh, loving nature of your salvation toward us, Lord, the mercy that you have extended to such a depraved people, Lord, that we, that we may appreciate more the holiness that you um, cover us with in the blood of your Son, the righteousness that we could not possibly earn in, in um, all eternity that you have covered us with in your Son. We pray this, Lord, in your Son's name. Amen. So this section um, is a, a profound testimony to the sovereignty of God in salvation. But more than that, it also speaks of the sustaining nature that we are in, uh, that we are held in for the believer. That we are, we are held in that salvific state. Paul reminds the Roman church that the believer's victory over sin is and can only be found in Christ. There's no other way to have victory over sin. There's no other way to be righteous. In verse 26, we find that the believer is not left to his own resources and strength to overcome weakness. In our ultimate desire to be fully restored with Christ, in our redempted bodies, we read that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us in our weakness. We don't have the strength to do it. We sometimes don't have the words. We don't know what we don't need. We don't know what we need sometimes. The kind of weakness here is a spiritual and physical, since we are living in, a fallen, in our fallen nature. The Holy Spirit helps us carry the heavy load of holiness and overcoming the temptation of the world. In verse 26, look at that word, helps. It's a present tense, active word, which, which means there is an ongoing, continuous help. Because as believers, we are in a perpetual state of needing help. We are in a perpetual state of dependency on God, right? Uh, until, of course, we are with Him. The obvious fact of our weakness is that we don't even know how to pray as we should. So, so God's Spirit intercedes there for us as well. And this section in chapter 8 highlights God's sovereignty in all things also, whatever may come to the believer, that through Christ the believer has victory over sin and can over come all trials and all temptations and the lure of the world. Through the trials, the good times that we have and the the bad times and everything in between, Paul reminds the believers that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. Which means that even when we are facing a difficult trial, um, God's omniscient, sovereign hand has not overlooked it has not missed it, but often he allows it for purposes to be fulfilled. But our main focus in this section is going to be verse 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those, those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. I don't think you see man doing anything in that section of Scripture. This section lays out the calling, which is of God, the justifying, which is of Him, and the glorification that is of God alone, that is done in the lives of those who He has predestined. So there's no merit here at all to be found. So when we begin to understand this process... And we begin to appreciate the author of our salvation. We begin to see nothing of ourselves in it. God does it all. We have no authority. We can only respond to what He does. So the responses of the believer, of believers who are formerly zealous for Christ, 
only then to depart from it, which we looked at earlier, are just simply false believers. They cannot fall out of something they were never resting in. To see an example of this, let me turn to a very familiar passage, which is looking at the parables of the sower. Some mistakenly think those are four aspects of salvation, um, four various kinds of salvation. It is not. There's only one there. But if you want to turn there, Mark verse 4. Sorry, Mark chapter 4, verse 3 to 8. I'll, I'll read from verse 3. Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on a rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, what did it do? It withered away. Other seed from it fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up, choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seed fell into good soil, and producing grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and even a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So Jesus gives this parable to help us to understand the various types of false conversions and gives an example of a genuine response. The first is the one sown by the road, or one says the wayside. The word that is, was sown in their heart from the believer was immediately taken away by, by Satan. There's no um, response to the gospel. The one sown on rocky ground is describing a hearer who immediately receives the word with gladness, but it's an emotional response and does not endure, does not last. They turn from it whenever there is a trial, whenever there is a difficulty. They don't have any assurance of their salvation, and they don't rest in it. If persecution arises, they stumble and they turn from their faith. Then we look at the thorns. In this case, professing believers hear the word, but the worries, the temptations, they choke the word, and they never bear fruit. It has no impact in their lives, or no lasting result. But then we have one genuine salvation here. Not only do they hear the gospel, they respond to it. They bear fruit, and not just a little bit of fruit, up to a hundredfold. So it's explaining here, it's a, it's a dramatic um, work of God in their heart. So Christ didn't give us this parable so that we can then detect who might be a false believer and who is genuine. This is not a, a, um, a filter for that kind of assessment. You know, only God knows the heart. But this parable does tell us something. It tells professing believers what salvation should look like. We should be looking for fruit as evidence, not proofs, which we'll get to now, as evidence of the salvation we profess to have in Christ. False believers will profess to know Christ as their Savior, but it will bear no good or no lasting fruit. When we are saved, the natural result will be a response to that. A natural result will be to bear good fruit, to do the will of the Lord is to bear good fruit. Because it is what? It is Christ who is working in us. It's not of us. It is of Him. And we have no worry about falling away because of the eternal security that God promises us in our salvation. As Paul says, we are sealed for the day of redemption in Ephesians 4. So we cannot be snatched out of our salvation because we are saved by Christ's perfect work on the cross, not our imperfect works on earth. Our works here are toiling um, and it's uh, an imperfect works. Whereas the cross is the final work that set us free. So this eternal sealing and perfect salvation is important to understand as a work of God, not a response to man. Now think of this in the context of evangelism. As Spurgeon once said, if I can earn my salvation, then surely I can lose it. It's paraphrasing, I don't know his exact words, but that gives you the image there that if you are in fact the author, then you can change the story. 
and that is not the case. There are three terms that I want to just quickly look at this morning that help us to appreciate this drawing that God does, this work in our heart that God does in our salvation. And it helps us to appreciate the eternal security that we have in Him. And those terms are irresistible grace. These are interchangeable. Um, others use the term particular redemption or the effectual call. And all of those highlight a response to God that is um, given to us even. God allows us to respond in this way. It helps us to understand the biblical promise in God's saving work that will keep you in that salvation. So when God makes the call through the transforming work of the Spirit in your sinful heart, this is a call you cannot ignore. The truth of the gospel and the saving work of the Spirit is forevermore sealed, and a genuine believer cannot deny it. You can't turn from it. Now we know there are many calls we can ignore. You can ignore the phone. Um, Parents with small children know that Children can ignore the call of the parents. Uh, They can tune you out quite easily. Uh, It is sinful, but it is something they can do if they're engaged in loud play or maybe they're out of earshot or they can convince themselves that he couldn't hear you or you're calling for chores. They do have selective hearing, so we know that can be tuned out, but not so with the Lord. A call from the Lord is something you cannot shut off. It is effectual because it is irresistible. His work and His sovereignty cannot be missed or ignored. When that call comes, the force of God's transforming nature and work takes place in our hearts, takes place in our minds, and it restores our souls. And that cannot be run from. So I want to outline this morning how this effectual call um, that each of us can know without a doubt the, the security of our salvation. But it also helps us to heed the warning of false belief. It will also encourage us as we share the gospel to those who don't know Christ as their Savior. It will encourage us to remain diligent and faithful in our gospel sharing because it is not our sharing that saves, but God who saves and seals the hearer. So if you're taking notes, we're going to look at the external nature of God's sovereignty and salvation, the external working, the internal nature, and then the eternal, external, internal, eternal. So we're going to look at general revelation as the external. And we can call that the the general call of the gospel. It's general because it's for everyone to hear. It is the means by which we proclaim the saving work of Christ. This outward call of the gospel is God's general grace to everyone and our joy, but also our responsibility to proclaim. This is part of what is known as common grace. It is common partially because it is proclaimed to everyone, the just and the unjust. We also see general grace um, in nature, that we can see the handiwork of the Lord. And this general grace and outward call of God is given to the church to proclaim so that all can know of their need of a saving faith in Christ. Paul in Romans 10 explains this need that we know well. Verse 14, How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So that is the church's responsibility to fulfill that um, outward proclamation for an inward transformation. So this general or this external call of God that becomes internal as the elect respond. Those who hear and respond to the gospel as it falls on good soil. Now, however, we don't know that um, who will respond. But we do know that few are chosen. When we share the gospel, we don't know who God has chosen to respond to his call. But we do know that when they respond, it will be because of him doing the work in them. Not us convincing. 
We don't convince people into salvation at all. We should also be encouraged that sin, and this is a, not necessarily encouragement, but be encouraged that people are stubborn. We, just as we don't know who will be saved, we also don't know when they will respond. A person can hear the gospel for years, but only respond at God's preordained time and turn to Christ in repentance. So don't be discouraged by a lack of response to your friends, to your neighbors, to your family. Use opportunities as they come up, even if you've been previously rejected. Well, your message has been rejected, I suppose, and maybe you, but as they have not responded to the gospel, don't give up. It is, we don't know how God has been working in their hearts, and we don't know when they may turn to Him for their salvation. And that brings us to this internal nature of this irresistible grace, this inward call to His elect. That's the other side of the coin for the general, is the particular. And it's this effectual and transforming call to those who are that good soil that we read about. This general call has no value whatsoever if it does not actually work to save. For the elect, this inward call of the gospel transforms their hearts and minds completely and permanently. But that's not of their own doing. This inward call always results in the salvation because God is the one who initiates, He secures, and He gives the gift of belief to the hearer. Now let's look at the certainty of this inward call, which we find in John 6.37. You can turn there, because I'll look at a couple of passages there. John 6.37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. A few verses later, in verse 44, confirms this. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Let's look at this. We can see here that God is the one who draws us to himself. Or we don't draw him to us. You're familiar, I think, with the a contemporary Christian phrase, which I just want to point out. That phrase is, I accepted Jesus. Who's used that? I'm sure you've all heard it, and we might even be guilty of using the Christian ease without really thinking about the implications of that statement. I accepted Jesus. What this phrase says about God's drawing is that the hearer makes the decision. This phrase is a misunderstanding of the internal and the effectual call of God in their salvation. We don't accept Christ because we don't even seek Him. He, he's the one who accepts us. We are the one that need accepting. When we say that we accept Jesus, it sounds as though we are assessing the merit of this Lord of our universe. And it's the clay pot judging and assessing the potter. Think of the arrogance of that for a moment. It's a phrase that's so unbiblical as to almost be blasphemous. I accepted the one and only true holy God, me, a sinner with a wretched heart. I accepted him. If you are assessing and weighing up the value or even the usefulness of Christ, then it also means you have the choice to accept or to reject what God has preordained. In a sense, you're saying you... You sinner, you can thwart God's divine plan of salvation by deciding you are better off without Him. You are saying that if you reject Him, it is because you have a better understanding of Christ and of yourself than God does. But conversely, if you say you accept Him, it makes God the beneficiary of your decision. Right? God is now the one who is benefiting from your decision to accept Him because you have accepted rather than rejected, rejecting Him. Another term that you may be using is that you gave your heart to Christ. Now I'm using these to help us not ever use them again because <laughs> um, I, I really want to know by bringing up common terminology 
And looking at the implications of it helps us to rather look at biblical terminology and helps us to understand the biblical meaning of salvation better. You gave your heart to Christ. Now what does our heart look like? Do you think Christ wants your heart? That deceitful and wicked heart? Not at all. God transforms that heart and makes it clean because of His righteous blood. We should rather be saying, Thank you God for accepting me because of what Christ has done. We are His because of Christ alone. Now I'm not saying that if we don't use this exact terminology, you can't be saved. I'm not saying that at all. But I am saying that we should use biblical language to understand the biblical meaning. Otherwise we can infuse all kinds of extra biblical meaning into precise biblical terms. Now, in this context, we know that John says this, No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. That's what Christ is saying. There is no accepting Jesus in this passage at all that we've just looked at. But rather, what we see is a clear work of God that does the drawing of the person to repentance and drawing him to faith. If we look back at Romans 8, verse 30, Paul makes election by God very clear. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. He, he, he does a calling, he does the uh, justification, he does the glorification. Here Paul lays out from start to finish God's plan in redemption, in which he is the author in all aspects. God is the one who calls, he's the one who justifies, He's the one who glorifies. This liberates us as we share the hope that is in us. We are now confined to these boundaries of biblical understanding of salvation. That liberates you to speak the plain truth of the gospel. We are bound by the truth and clarity because it is the truth and the clarity of the gospel that saves. We don't have to mince words. We don't have to omit certain passages or statements or declarations of a sinner's state before God. It frees us from trying other means because we know that if the gospel falls on the good soil that God has already prepared in eternity past, it will not fail to save. Not a single person will be lost that is meant to be found. In verse 30, this verse does not simply mean that God knows what a person will do, although that meaning is there. It means he already personally knows that person. He has an intimate and deep knowledge of all of his people. And his foreknowledge of them is a love that he has for the entire bride of Christ. And he chose them before the foundations of the earth. Which means, is the implication, you are not chosen because God sees something special in you. Or that he foresees good works that you will do in your life. What are good works outside of the cross of Christ? They are nothing. The unsaved good works are like filthy rags to the Lord. So you cannot be, um, you cannot earn by merit or through works your salvation. There is no good that can be done outside of salvation. Note also in verse 30 that the verbs called, justified, glorified, these are all past tense. This means it is an action that has already happened. It is not temporary. It's not a temporary present tense nor a future tense, but a past and complete event. God has decreed the calling. He's decreed the justification and the glorification of the elect and predestined them to glory. Wow. That frees us up. That is liberating stuff. Therefore, God, God's choosing of the elect cannot be unchosen, just as His sovereign will cannot be thwarted or undone. He does not change, and His decree will not be thwarted. So we can praise God for that. Imagine the enormity of your insecurity, the anxiety you would feel not knowing the certainty of your salvation. But here we see it. We know it is of God. 
So what about false conversions? Paul explains in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3, why some, even after hearing the same gospel that you responded to, even after acknowledging the truth of the gospel, they don't have saving faith. And he says this, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who are the image of God. The gospel is veiled to them and their minds have been blinded toward it. Does that mean they're predestined to condemnation? We'll look at that. False believers can live with an intellectual assent of the gospel and even diligently participate in religious activities. Coming to church is religious activity if you're not saved. Going to prayer meeting, a Bible study is a religious activity if you're not covered and clothed in the righteousness of Christ. It's all mental. It's all uh, rote. For them, sometimes it's just enough to have a sense of belonging. A sense of belonging to a collective, a righteous collective, the good, the good side of history. And there's also even an intellectual satisfaction going through the scriptures because it makes sense. It's historically true. We can look at the lexicology, the word studies are satisfying and the the archaeological evidence of the Old Testament is overwhelming, and all of that's very satisfying to the mind. But that does not save. Acknowledging does not bring salvation. These hearers are living as though they are, there's a salvation by proxy. Through you I am saved, because I belong to you as a body. They think that if they walk the walk and talk the talk and associate with the right churches and the right preachers, they will be saved along with that church. But that's not at all what salvation does. There are those who, there are denominations that do believe that that as well, but of course, that's not spoken anywhere in Scripture. A false convert can hear a thousand sermons, but still have an unregenerate, and a hard heart. He can fake it for years. But eventually the fruit will show that he has not been transformed from death to life. And he still loves his sin rather or more than the righteousness of God. Because remember, he, he loves the idea of righteousness. There's a sense of satisfaction to know you're one of the good guys. So he, but he loves his sin more than that. And there's no effectual work in his life. But some might hear a single gospel message and be broken right there immediately over their sin because God works immediately in their heart, effectually in their heart, internally in their lives. And from there, they will feed on those same thousand sermons and grow and bear fruit in their sanctification. And they continue to make war with their sin as we looked at this morning. It's, it's something you, you desire because you want to be more conformed to the image of His Son. You want to be more Christ-like. That is something that God places in your life, that desire that He gives you. So, in contrasting the response of the saved and the unsaved, Paul explains the effect of the unconverted in the next verse, in verse 6 in Second Corinthians. For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is the eternal work of the gospel. That is shone into our hearts by God's Spirit working in us. And as we read in chapter 5 of Bridges' book there, the, the triune God is at work as well. It's not the Holy Spirit on His own renegade mission. He's working in submission to the Father and the Son and communicating what the, the Father and the Son need us to to have communicated to us. So, it does not shine here because some have a greater understanding or more clever minds or more righteous lives or innate goodness or better deeds. It is shone in our hearts because God has lifted the veil and given the light of the knowledge of the gospel right there. Verse 6. Light 
shines out of darkness and has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Now, this is the question. It's a big question. Um, and I won't have time to deal with this completely, but I, this is going to draw you into the Bible study and maybe even another sermon <laughs> that's related to this. Does God then will that people should perish? Does God have seemingly two contradictory wills? The first will is that God desires and none should perish. That's the revealed will of God. He's, that's given to us by His Word, and, and we know that by the truth of the Gospel. The second will is that God saves who? All mankind? Who does He save? His elect. Sorry, I thought I was in Bible study for a second. <laughs> Wondering why you weren't answering. Um, his elect. So, this is the unrevealed will of God. We don't know who will be saved. Only that it could be anyone. In, sec, uh, sorry, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, it is God who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. This knowledge that we just looked at, at here, the knowledge of the glory of God, also described as the knowledge of truth. But if that is so, meaning that the desire that all be saved, then why does God reserve salvation to the elect? Doesn't that sound a bit like a contradiction? On the surface of it, maybe. But God's Word has the answers. God wills that all be saved, but then he's limiting the salvation to those who he's predestined to save. Are you tracking with me? Well, we know also that God does not delight in the death of unbelievers. Even in the Old Testament, we know that we look at the rebellion of Israel. God does not want to destroy the rebellious and the wicked. In Ezekiel uh, 33.11, As I live, declares, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. So God does not predestine unbelievers in their unbelief. Unbelief is a result of the fall. And therefore, it's the default position and the state of all mankind. And in this, as we looked at there at 1 Timothy 2, it doesn't say all will be saved. It says that God desires that all would be saved. So God is grieved by unbelief. He's grieved by sin. But because of the fallen world and the hard hearts of men, they will reject salvation that is offered and extended to them. But this does not mean, in a deterministic way, that unbelief is a foregone conclusion to all. This is a fatalism that says that God has determined my demise. Therefore, why should I even think about the gospel since I might not be the elect? I've heard that argued. Why bother? I don't know that I'm chosen. It might be for nothing, for naught. But know that, know this, that God has not eliminated man's responsibility to respond. So there, it's now, the buck has now been passed to you in a sense. Everyone still has accountability to respond. Each of us still has a responsibility because we know of God through His general revelation that we looked at, His general grace to us, but also in the special grace that He extends to you that you can understand. So if you're sitting here resisting the piercing truth of the gospel and the conviction of your sin, then you're sinning against God. You're rebelling and you're culpable. Because he's given you the gift of salvation. And the general and special grace that will free you from your sin. Now I can't deal with this sufficiently, obviously. Um, John Piper can, which is why I've quoted him here. <laughs> he's, he's good, I love this. Reflecting on this very passage in 1 Timothy 2, verse 4, he says this. What are we to say of the, fa of the fact that God desires something that in fact does not happen? What are we to say of the fact that God desires something that in fact does not happen? There are two possibilities that he says. One possibility is that there is a power in the universe greater than God's. Okay? 
Philosophically, that's an argument. It can't be true, but that's a philosophical approach. And because of that, this greater power is frustrating God by overruling what God desires. The other possibility is that God wills not to save all, even though He desires that all be saved, because there is something else that He wills or desires more. Let me say that again. The reason that God wills not to save all, even though He desires that all be saved, is because there is something else that He wills or desires more, which would be lost if He exerted His sovereign power to save all. What would be lost? That God wills for all to be saved. What would be lost? And when we queried why all are not saved, we answer this, because God is committed to something even more valuable than saving all, His own glory. God's bigger commitment over our salvation is His own glory. And our salvation is simply a reflection of His grace and His glory. Election then is where we can see the ultimate expression of God's sovereignty in our salvation. Amen? It is beyond the scope of this sermon to satisfactorily settle all of the points, but Wednesday's coming, and uh, maybe even a follow-up message. But uh, we, I want you to simply walk away understanding and knowing that God's purposes are greater than just the salvation of men. Now, from our human and puny perspective, that seems like a pretty big deal, our salvation and our neighbor's salvation. But there is a bigger and greater purpose and glorification. That is God's glory. So it's not a contradiction for God to have the will that everyone be saved and not a contradiction to extend the gospel to all that they may be saved. But then know that only those who He elects will respond to the call. That's not a contradiction. For those who are saved, they are saved because it is unmerited. It's an unmerited gift of grace and mercy. And in response, we should joyfully and passionately reach out to those who may also respond to His calling. Because if they do, it's effectual and it's eternal. And they are His. A writer for a publication called Reformed Theology, I didn't get the name, says this, Irresistible grace does not mean that whenever the Spirit works, He is irresistible. Rather, it means that while His promptings are always resisted by the dead in sin, He can make the gospel irresistible when He opens their spiritually blind eyes, when He opens their deaf ears and turns their heart of stone to a heart of flesh. He quickens us while we are dead, which is no work of man. That shows us God's sovereignty in our salvation that is irresistible because of Him lifting the veil. God is the one and only God can breathe life into the dead, spiritually and physically. So God then, if we can summarize, gives the gift of faith, gives the gift of regeneration and the gift of salvation. (coughs) So moving from the external working of God The internal response of man, we're now going to look at the eternal response of the effectual call. Turn with me to the Gospel of John, and this won't take long. I'm nearly done. John 10, verse 27 and 28. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Now, if genuine believers are predestined to salvation, they are irresistibly drawn to God, and the righteousness of Christ is imputed to them, then He must persevere to the end. Because it's a work of God. No one can snatch a believer out of, out of belief. No one can bring him to, into condemnation or back into condemnation. Since man has no say, man makes no effort, no man brings any merit, he cannot undo what has been fully done to him. 
The work of God alone is an assurance for the believer knowing that they have eternal security in their salvation. God no longer sees the sinner's sin because of that imputed righteousness of Christ over them. What does God see now? He only sees the righteousness of His Son because they are clothed in Him. The saving and certain call of the elect is what gives us that security. God has called us out. God has clothed us. And God gives us the eternal hope in the gospel. Salvation does, have a, does not have a partial effect. There is no temporary falling away and coming back and going out again. It is not partial. And it's not limited. It is a total restoration that gives an eternal effect. That's a lock that can't be broken. Now, being South African, no, I'm not. Well, in South Africa, all locks break here. We live in a perpetual state of insecurity. So this is foreign to us. But that is a kind of security that we can know because of God declaring it so. With God, the effectual, irresistible call of a saving grace does an internal work in us that is sealed by His own eternality. His promise of eternal life with Him. That's an unpickable lock, an unbreakable one, and provides us a security that's unbreakable. When the sheep hear His voice that we've just read... When they are drawn to Him as their Lord and Savior, they are His forever. We cannot be snatched out of His hand. This should give us boldness and assurance as we share the gospel to the lost world. Knowing that those whom God predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He justified. And those whom He justified, He glorified. Proclaim that gospel with assurance. Remember that it is not your effort. It's not your winsome nature. It's not your message. It is God's. God will work in the hearts of those, of, of His people, of the ones that He has called. And so we'll leave the results to Him. We're just messengers. He saves, He secures, He sanctifies. Let's look at an application. What we can know for certain is that we, and we don't want to gloss over this condition, is that Christians can indeed fall into sin. We all know that Christians can even be slow to repent because of a living an unguarded life. However, it is another thing for a believer to choose a life of sin and to hand oneself over to a life of righteousness and rebellion against the gospel. It's impossible for a genuine blood-bought believer to turn from the truth of the gospel and of the full counsel of Scripture and exchange it for a lie. So the question we come to, knowing the certainty of our salvation... For those who are purchased by Christ's own blood, how do we know we are saved? Well, let me put it another way. A lot of people claim to know Christ. Churches are full of them. Even people who don't want to go to church will even make that claim. I know Christ. But the question is, does He know you? That's what we've been looking at. This is of God. Salvation is of Him. One way is just by examining yourself. 2 Corinthians 13.5 Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves? That Jesus Christ is in you. Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. What is the test? What are the evidences that you look for? Well, fruit. Fruit of the Spirit. Fruit that should come from your life. Now we all will produce fruit, good or bad. But we are told to look for the good fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But if you are continually displaying immoral, impure, uh, sensuality, idolatry, strife, jealousy, anger, and so on, be alarmed. Panic, even. And this is the alarm that God gives us to see if we are indeed in the faith. But more than looking at what you do, Look at what has been done to you. Have you been purchased by the blood of Christ? That is being done to you. So you can look at what you do as evidences. But if you want proof, look at what has been done to you. Have you surrendered your life to Christ and placed your trust in Him? Is Christ the Lord of your life, the center of your hope, of your eternity? In 1 John 5, again, we will look at verse 11 to 13. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and in this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son 
does not have life. And verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know you have eternal life. So who is it that has the Son? It is those who have believed in Him. If you have placed your trust in Christ, you have life. Not temporary life. Not a fluctuating um, in salvation, out of salvation. But an eternal life in Him. According to 1 John 5.13, you can know that you have this eternal life. Do you believe that Jesus died to pay the penalty for your sins and rose again from the dead? That He died to death? Um, Do you trust in Him alone for your salvation? If your answer is yes, then you have that eternal assurance. You You can be free from doubt and have assurance by taking God's Word to heart and believe the reality of your salvation. For you that have not made this commitment, it is not the end for you. We plead with you, we implore to you to run to the cross where Christ becomes the righteousness in your place before God. He will renew you, He will cleanse you, so that when you are before God on that day that you are judged, God will only see the righteousness of His Son, not your wicked deeds. If you are saved, knowing God's electing and His eternal and eternal saving grace should drive you, should motivate you even more to declare such a great salvation to the lost. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, indeed, it is your Son alone, through Christ alone, that we are saved by grace alone. And Lord, what a treasure we have in that salvation. What a great salvation you have given us. Lord, may we be filled with joy in our hearts. May that be evident in our lives. May you see good fruit of our lives that is a product of your grace in our lives. Lord, that you continue to work in us, grow us, sanctify us, and draw us nearer to you. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen.